welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We are taping today on Thursday, May 14th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. And Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I want to start this week with Congress because now both houses are back, at least sort of. Uh, House Democrats have unveiled what will be their fourth or maybe the fifth, depending on how you count, COVID-19 relief bill. But unlike the ones that came before, this one is not bipartisan. Instead, it's a gigantic catch-all of a lot of Democratic wish list items, including not just another round of cash for most Americans, but also subsidies for COBRA health insurance continuation and an open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Republicans and the Trump administration have made it clear they are not feeling the need for another round of relief, at least not right now. And it's clear that this $3 trillion bill won't be enacted in the form uh, it's likely going to pass the House. But what pieces do you think might eventually end up signed into law? I know the Republicans want liability reform. The Democrats want money for states and localities. I mean, what what is likely to be in the next round of COVID relief, assuming there is going to be a next round of COVID relief? Well, I think that, you know, obviously you're correct that they're not going to be able to double the amount of spending so far in these four laws that have already passed. They've got $3 trillion already out the door, and they want to double that amount. Um, There is about almost a trillion dollars for states and local governments, uh, including states to grants for education and all sorts of things and virus testing and contact tracing. So there's a lot in there. Um, The the, uh, aid for certain things like, you know, the post office is going to be controversial, election security and so forth. Um, But I think that there is the possibility of a deal, because if you look, all of the four laws that have already passed have been bipartisan. Nancy Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin have the drill down once they are able to get buy-in from other parties. Um, they, They are able to work in a bipartisan way. There's so much internal discussion, though, among the Republicans right now that there's a lot of concern about the spending that has that has taken place. Um, You know, they there are a lot of Republicans who just say, look, we are spending a lot of money now. And, you know, it's three point seven trillion dollars, I think, is what the deficit is projected to be. It was already going to be a huge the deficit was already high um, before coronavirus hit. And now it's so much higher. So I think that we will eventually have a fifth law, I believe, but I think that it's going to take some time. I think that um, we don't actually know what it's going to be in the final package. And I think that there's going to be a lot of back and forth on this. Joanne, why COBRA? Do the Democrats have some reason to want to keep people on their employer health insurance, which is would be more expensive than just giving them some other kind of public health insurance. The, the insurance industry and the private employers and much of the healthcare sector does want to keep a viable or reasonably viable employer-sponsored insurance sector because they do not want um, – we, we were going to have a greater government role probably um, – 
even even without a pandemic. And certainly we would if a Democrat captures the White House, but they don't want it to be a ginormous increase in government role. They want to keep a big part of the insurance market. In addition, for it's cheaper for the government to do the ACA, but given some of the issues with large deductibles and so forth for some individuals and some families, it's going to be cheaper to stay on your, your if, if somebody else is picking up your COBRA cost, it's going to be cheaper to stay on your workplace policy and you you wouldn't even have to start a new deductible halfway through the year and meet a second one, et cetera. So it's more stability for people who have lost a lot of stability. But even though they're really going to fight, I think it's going to be harder to reach a deal on the next stimulus bill. I do think there's going to be more money getting shoveled out the door because, you know, we're talking on a day that, what is it, three and a half more million jobless today? Um, yeah. You know, it just came out. Claims. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people were thinking it might taper off a bit, and it did not. So there is a push to reopen, as we all know, and it's not going to go smoothly, as we all know. It's going to be uneven, and there are going to be st- setbacks, and it's you know it's it's not like okay, this is over, and con- most people in Congress realize that. And I think just to build on Joanne's point there, I think that the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell's statements do give Congress some encouragement and give Republicans some political cover when he says, you know, look, this is worse than any recession since World War II. This is without modern precedent. And, you know, as we see these numbers stack up, I think there's going to be more and more pressure. Yeah, he made it easier. You know, Powell yesterday made it easier for the Republicans to come forward. And some of the Republicans are coming forward. I mean, they're they're talking about very Andrew Wangy kind of ideas, Um, you know, some kind of wage support or income support more than just one month. The economy is devastated. You know, they're going to fight about the deficit later. And, you know, that's going to take us years to figure out, you know, this, we all know what, you know, it's going to be, do you cut services or do you cut taxes or raise taxes? But that's that's not the fight for today. That's a fight we're going to be covering for the rest of our careers, the three of us. But yes. um, that's not the fight today. The fight today is really how much more money do we shovel out the door? How fast do we shovel it? Who do we shovel it to? And what kind of oversight and what kind of conditions? The liability fight is going to be a big fight. All right. Well, I want to actually shift to the White House for a moment because it uh, has to do with how this gets negotiated. Um, As we now all know, COVID-19 has made a personal appearance at the White House with at least two West Wing aides, including Vice President Pence's press secretary, testing positive for the virus, which has prompted a cascade of actions, including a mask requirement for most White House staff and the need for the nation's top scientists, including the heads of the FDA and the CDC and NIH's Dr. Tony Fauci, to self-isolate for two weeks because they have been exposed to someone who tested positive. How much of a problem does this particular outbreak pose for an administration that, among other things, is trying to convince the rest of America that it's safe to reopen the economy? You know, you, you saw the president in the, in, you know, outdoors at yet another press conference outdoors the other day, and you saw him at his own little island podium. The people talking about testing, the public officials talking about testing, were at their own podium off to the side to really keep this moat. <laughs> there was no water or alligators, but it did look like a moat um, around the president. You know, this this he was on his platform and nobody near him. This disease is everywhere. You know, I think all of us know people who've gotten it who are, you know, responsible people who are washing their hands and wearing masks and, you know being as careful as they can, and people are still getting it. You know, and in some parts of the country and in some neighborhoods and in some public transport systems, it's more dangerous than others. But, you know, when it's at the White House, you don't need to be a sophisticated political analyst to know there's an optics problem. Absolutely. I just want to add on to that. I mean, I I think that the administration has been under some pressure 
and there have been some controversies related to Vice President Mike Pence not wearing the mask at the Mayo Clinic and questions about the president himself wearing it. But when you see these cases mount at the White House where they're testing every day, they're doing all these different things, it raises questions about how other companies that don't have the resources of the White House are going to be able to keep this virus at bay. And that's, I mean, that goes directly back to the liability question of, you know, this this next piece of legislation. This is what, you know, Republicans are terrified that people are going to go back to work and they're going to get sick and they're going to sue their employers or employers are going to not want to reopen because they're afraid of people coming back and getting sick and suing them. I mean, you go, you go into the grocery store, you go into the hardware store, you go to the hair salon, whatever. You're not going to necessarily know where you got sick. We're a litigious litiginous. We sue a lot. I never get that word right. <laughs> we sue a lot. <laughs> um, so can I hypothetically see some kind of compromise where for, on liability that if people do X, Y, and Z and they do everything right and, you know, they take proper precautions and they're responsible, you know, there would be some kind of protection. I, I can see that hypothetically. I don't know that that's going to come out. And it, it it's harder to reach that when we don't have good government guidelines on what a business is supposed to do. The CDC report has not been made public. You know, whether it was squelched forever or being finalized in a better way remains to be seen. Right now, if you're a business and you're opening tomorrow or next Monday or next Friday or whatever state you're in or whatever town you're in and you want to do the absolute safest, best thing, there's no one really reliable to tell you what that is. So that's another problem. I mean, if the White House was the best healthcare minds in the world couldn't keep it out of the White House. How is, you know, Sammy's nail salon going to yeah. do it? Well, that speaking of which, I want to move back to the Senate, um, which, as we've noted, is not exactly working on legislation at the moment. But the Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee had a high profile and frankly, very weird hearing on Tuesday that featured the aforementioned scientists. CDC and dogs. Chief Redfield. Yes, FDA. I was getting that. FDA Chief Hahn, NIH's Tony Fauci, all of whom are self-quarantining, along with Admiral Brett Giroir, who's heading the testing effort for the Trump administration. Also not in physical attendance at the hearing was the committee's chairman, Republican Senator Lamar Alexander, who is self-isolating at home in Tennessee with his dog um, because one of his staffers tested positive for COVID-19. Um, did we learn anything new from this hearing other than that the Senate really can't figure out what kind of precautions it's going to take? We saw some some masked uh, senators and some unmasked senators and at least a couple of Republicans with beards, which is not helpful <laughs> if you're going to wear a mask. You know, I think that we didn't learn a ton that was new, but it was good to actually hear it again in a fresh way and, and also see some of the back and forth between some of the senators and uh, Tony Fauci. Um, I think that his comment about, you know, the consequences being really serious and you might have these little spikes that could turn into outbreaks if you don't really take this seriously. I think um, every time he says that, then people should be paying attention to that. But we're starting to see a little bit of the senators tuning that out and even with Rand Paul pushing back a little bit on that. The thing that was interesting to me were the comments on schools reopening. I think that uh, Senate Health Committee Chairman Lamar Alexander really wanted to hear that schools can reopen, that the 31,000 people at the University of Tennessee can come back in August with some you know, sense of security. And he was hoping that testing would be the answer there. And I think that all the experts do believe that ramping up testing is going to be 
a huge bonus and benefit and help the economy, but it's not an end-all be-all. We saw the HHS is projecting that they'll be able to do 40 million to 50 million tests. And I think that that gives some reassurance, but Fauci did sort of caution that this is not something that is a great situation because obviously we don't have a vaccine and we don't have therapeutics beyond remdesivir um, that can really help and we won't by this fall. And so that is a concern. He did come back at the end of the hearing and sort of clarify that, hey, I don't mean that schools can't open at all. That's not what I'm saying. Um, so it was interesting to me that, that Chairman Alexander tried to pin him down and clarify that point. Um, but I do, do think that there was a lot to give us pause in the testimony. The other thing is that for those of us who were watching the White House briefings each and every day, or we were hearing a lot of this, it's not new to us that, that Tony Fauci is worried about moving too fast. However, there hasn't been a briefing for a few weeks, and it was a different audience and a different venue, and he said it very forcefully. So it, it was a careful, powerful iteration that he knew he was calibrating that, I'm quite certain, and he knew how it would be heard and by whom it would be heard and this context in which it would be heard. So even though he has said, I'm worried we can't go too fast, et cetera, et cetera, you know, there had been a two-week pause and then a sort of more dramatic, forceful iteration of that as the country is reopening, without the gates and phases and all the things that we were supposed to be gradually reopening. It's not pell-mell. I mean, it's not like the whole country just suddenly flung open every door, but it's faster and somewhat more haphazard than the public health people had wanted this process to be. And, and Fauci's testimony also prompted a response from President Trump when he sort of said his answer on schools was an unacceptable answer. And we saw some of the tensions that have been building play out a little bit more this week, um, even though Dr. Fauci said in the hearing very carefully, oh, no, we don't have a confrontational relationship. Uh, the president did react somewhat confrontationally um, yes <laughs> right. well, all right, well speaking of confrontations as we are taping this there's a house hearing happening um with rick bright the recently ousted uh head of barda the the um hhs's sort of vaccine and bioterror uh research agency uh and he is at least uh in his uh prepared testimony that was released last night, um, he is taking a rather confrontational uh, stance against the administration. Rebecca, you you saw that testimony, yes? Oh, yes. Uh, He's not shy. Um, I think that uh, the House Democrats really wanted to draw some attention to this situation. Um, This is someone who has a lot of expertise And he says that he was ignored and he says that his warnings were downplayed. And um, he is warning that 2020 may be the darkest winter in modern history if we don't really push harder on having a national testing strategy and if we don't have more leadership. I think that um, we're going to continue to see Democrats especially try to broadcast that message. Um, and I, I'm very interested to see sort of what some of the back and forth today will be. We saw a lot of uh, a feistiness and some fiery exchanges yesterday at the first hearing of the Select Coronavirus Committee um, with Republicans on one side and, and Democrats on the other, with Democrats sort of being more cautious about reopening 
the economy and saying that if you don't have a public health solution, then the economy is not going to be able to rebound in the same way. And we also, in fact, saw Dr. Fauci make that argument earlier in the week as well. Yeah, and, and Joanne, we've been sort of walking around this for the entire time we've been talking. I mean, there is no federal guide to reopening, right? There is no There is no policy that we have. Everybody keeps, you know, pointing to things. Um, but, but I mean, I think haphazard was a word you used, and I think that's a pretty good word. We're just, I mean, it seems like every other country, some countries have done better than other countries, but every other country seems to have a national strategy, and we just don't. There is some guidance coming out of OSHA, but I don't know how detailed. It is not comprehensive. It is not mandatory. It's more suggestive than prescriptive, and I don't think it covers every circumstance. And then, not that any guide won't cover any every circumstance, but, you know, you want something that's pretty comprehensive and pretty consistent. You know, even a reporter who still goes to the White House briefings pointed out that they have all these uh, arrangements, right? You have to get your temperature taken before you go in. It's There's there's social distancing once you're inside. You have to have a mask. The reporters are, are if it's an inside briefing, there there many seats are empty. If it's an outside briefing, the seats are far, but the chairs are far apart in the lawn. But when you arrive, you have to stand in line to get your temperature taken, and you're like all squished in together. So, you know, it's really easy if you're a restaurant owner and you're, you can make, you know, 10 really smart safety and social distancing and, you know, sneeze guards or whatever, and, and forget one thing, you know? So, I mean, I wouldn't know how to open a business myself. I would have ideas and some of them would probably make sense, but maybe one of my ideas would be really stupid, or maybe I would be forgetting something really obvious. So they, they don't have, um, the guidance that they need and the guidance they're getting from trade groups is not necessarily enough. It does not go as far or, or contemplate, you know, it's, it's a softer reopen guide because the businesses, the, the trade groups are trade groups. They're not public health authorities. They're thinking about opening the business. They're not necessarily thinking about, you know, community contagion. But, you know, if you don't make your workplace safe, in addition to the fact that your workers aren't going to want to show up, your customers aren't going to want to come in. You know, some of the states are, are opening more businesses, but they're doing it on a curbside pickup basis only. I don't think there are any two states doing the same thing. I think if you were to look at how the states are approaching it, you're going to have 50 different sets of standards. And, and then even with within states, I mean, we all live in Maryland and, you know, they're part of the state is where there haven't been very many cases is opening up. And the part of the state that we live in where there have been a lot of cases is not opening up yet. So, I mean, it's there's even, you know, sort of intrastate differences, which is going to I don't know how that's going to work out. I mean, obviously, you know, where we are, we can go we're as easily into Washington, D.C. or Virginia as we can to other parts of Maryland. But, you know, people cross state and county lines without ever thinking about it. And you, there is a worry that if things open up in some places, people in the places that are still locked down are going to go to the places where they're open um, and cause, you know, another as, as what, what was a, a little spike, as, as uh, Dr. Fauci was saying, that could lead to another outbreak. So the whole thing is very imperfect. There were pictures over Mother's Day of um, restaurants near the Tennessee-Virginia border. And in Virginia, they were still closed or take it only. And on Tennessee, it was not the ones we saw, the ones that made the news. There may have been some very responsibly opened, you know, three, three tables, 10 feet apart. But the ones that we saw the news were jam-packed. 
and yeah. you know, it's right. It was right near the Tennessee Virginia border. And, and well, yeah. And if you if you've ever been to Bristol, it I mean, literally half of the town is in Tennessee and half of the town is in Virginia. So I mean, like down the main street. I mean, there literally is this. You know, the city is in both states. I mean, so. and the virus does not recognize state boundaries. It does not, or it's international boundaries, as the whole world has as, learned, as we have seen. And people don't recognize state boundaries either. I mean, what we saw in Georgia is that when it opened up, a lot of people from Alabama and South Carolina and Florida all of a sudden were going to Georgia to get their hair cut. Yep. I think I said it two weeks ago, but I'm going to repeat myself. The first person who manages to come up with a way of doing telehaircutting is going to get very, very rich. <laughs> Indeed. I desperately need a haircut, but I'm not going back until I think it's a little safer. Right. All right well, I want, I want to talk about the Affordable Care Act because we can. Um, Senator Alexander, the aforementioned Senator Alexander, was on Meet the Press last week, and he was asked about the Supreme Court case that could invalidate the ACA, and he said, and I quote, I thought the Justice Department argument was really flimsy. What they're arguing is that when we, in the Senate, voted to get rid of the individual mandate, we voted to get rid of Obamacare. I don't know one single senator who thought that. Um, I, you know, I, we've seen this said before, but I don't think I had seen a senator say it quite so plainly. Um, obviously, that would in part invalidate the entire lawsuit because the Republican attorneys general and governors who brought the suit argued that Republican senators who voted for that 2017 tax bill that lowered the individual mandate penalty to zero did indeed intend to invalidate the Affordable Care Act. I mean, could this have any impact on what happens or at least sort of the, is he trying to sort of make up for the the politics going into the fall where the Republicans are trying to take away health insurance at a time when people are already losing their health insurance? Alexander has never been in public enemy number one of of the ACA. I mean, there were a lot of things he did, he didn't vote for it. He voted to repeal it. He you know, but he never was just. He was always more cautious. He he was he was one of the pe- he was one of the reasons why it didn't get repealed because he was one of the people who said you have to repeal and replace. He didn't just say there was a Republican movement to just scrap it, and he said you can't do that. You can't just take things away. Even though he voted for subsequent repeal and replace legislation, it created a momentum that is one reason that the law was never repealed. Um, and also he also he's retiring, so he doesn't retired. have to worry about this right. fall. Um, um, and, the, and the other comments that I didn't personally hear but read was uh, John Cornyn, who's been a huge enemy of the ACA, who is really a gung-ho repeal guy. And when he was asked about all these uninsured people, he says, well, they can just go into the ACA and very, oh, we have protection for them. It's called the Affordable Care Act. They can, they can get covered that way. And it just, I mean, I think collectively many jaws dropped. Yes. Yeah. My, and, my uh, the Ways and Means ranking Republican Kevin Brady even made that point, too, on a call, you know, the ACA that we've been trying to get rid of. Hey, that's an option for people. The good news is, you know, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a did an a- analysis. And the good news is that almost 80% of people who lose their employer coverage probably do qualify for Medicaid or the subsidies. So th- there is a cushion there that was not there in previous recessions. But the size of the ACA going into the fall election, the enrollment in both Medicaid expansion and the exchanges could be, we don't know how many people will actually sign up because it's hard to sign up right now. Um, and they don't know they can sign up, but it's gonna, it could easily be many millions more, many millions more. It could double, I mean, because there's just not that many people in it now. Um, speaking of which, um, the United Health announced this week that they're going to get back into the ACA marketplaces next year. They mostly left after 2017, but now they say they will sell in Maryland, or actually Governor Hogan says that they will sell in Maryland. They're not saying where they're going back. 
Um, They've said Maryland and other states to be announced later. We don't know how many other states and we don't know which states, but we do know they have said Maryland. So my question for you guys is, does United think that this is really the beginning of the end of the employer link to insurance? Or did they just finally think they could make some money in some of these markets where they were losing money and that's why they got out? I mean, is this something bigger or are they just sort of seeing a business opportunity is my question. We don't know whether they would have gone back in possibly anyway. I mean, I tend to think they might have waited another year to see what happened with the court and the elections. I don't think that employer-sponsored insurance is going away in the next six months, but I do think more people are going to be in government programs, the ACA and Medicaid and CHIP, and that's a reality. And if that market particularly if there's greater subsidies or, you know, there's, if, if Congress does anything and it's effective next year, if they, if they make, if they do anything to make things more affordable for people in the ACA or more risk adjustment or sta- whatever kind of stabilization, which is possible, even baby steps can, can stabilize things. It could be a good market to go into. Uh, it is a vote of confidence and it's survival. I mean, if, if the court throws it all out, throws it all out. I mean, if it survives and prospers, United will make money. And I would say we should also keep our eye on Medicaid because Medicaid has really done the heavy lifting in the past few years and, you know, continues to cover so many people. I 72 million is the number that pops in my head. And I think that they're are going to be a couple of dynamics to watch. Um, One is that there will be an additional burden for states because, you know, remember they have to balance their budgets every year and they are going to have a lot of financial strain in terms of coming up with their share of the Medicaid match. Congress did provide some additional money. They, They did boost the federal matching rates going back to January and they got states, I think, a 6.2% percentage point increase. But I think that a lot of people are calling for more. And in this new House Democratic bill, there is more for Medicaid. Um, Back during the Great Recession, states even got a bigger federal matching rate than than what they've gotten so far. Yeah. In most most recessions, Congress gives a boost to the matching rate for Medicaid. And then they mm -hmm. then they fight about how long to make it for it to go before it expires again. But Mm -hmm. there's also about a dozen states that have not expanded Medicaid. And there's going to be an expanded number of people in that Medicaid gap, people who are newly unemployed, who have lost their insurance, and who do not have the op- do not have any option because they're below the poverty line, they're too poor for the ACA, and their state did not expand Medicaid. That may be another reason that some of the senators are going to be for COBRA, because if you give them COBRA, you don't have to expand Medicaid. Or, I mean, it would be an argument. You could take care of them in another way. So I haven't yet heard Republican senators from the non-expansion states endorsing COBRA. Maybe one or two have. I'm not aware of any. I'm not, I don't have the whole list of all 100 of them of what they say about COBRA. Um, But that could be part of their thinking on some of them that could factor in. But the the Democrats are also going to look for ways to build pressure or incentives. You know, pressure didn't work. So can they come up with some kind of an incentive for those states, 100% of the federal match instead of 90 or something like that to, to get these People have suggested, you know, that it was 100% for the first three years, and obviously that's long gone, but then there's been thought, well, they could offer it again for states newly coming in, give them three years of 100%. I mean, that's been on the table in a number of ways. And But it may have more urgency right now because, as you just pointed out, Julia, the states are going to be pressed. I mean, they're, every single state is going to be financially right. pressed. So if you give them the re- – if they don't have to cough up that money for the Medicaid for three years or two years or one year or whatever they decide to do, it might make it easier. The hospitals are sure going to pressure. And some of them vote. 
<laughs> some of the people, some of the 30 million people who used to have jobs vote. If they can, I think, I think, which is another right, issue. Right. We're, we're not going question. into the post office here. That's another one. <laughs> I think uh, in terms of the political pressure, looking at the Kaiser analysis, I was sort of interested in one thing that they found, which is that at least a million residents in some of in eight states are going to be losing their coverage. And some of those states are states that are battleground states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, Florida, Michigan, Ohio. Some people even want to put Texas in that category. So I think there will be some political pressure building. I mean, yeah. if you're unemployed and you lost your insurance and you still don't have insurance in, you know, in November and your lawmaker in those states says, well, I know you're uninsured, but, you know, Obamacare is such a disaster. I wouldn't want you to have it. Um, I don't think that's going to necessarily go over all that well, particularly for people who have health problems or who want to take their kid to the doctor or who have diabetes or who whatever, which is a lot of people. And who at that point may have been without health insurance for seven or eight months. Well, that is the news for this week. We're going to leave that there. Um, now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Rebecca, why don't you go first this week? Sure. I chose Dental Offices Hit Hardest in Healthcare Industry Layoffs by Mary Ellen McIntyre and Michael McInoni. These are my colleagues. And I thought they did a really good job of not only finding one person in, in Washington, D.C., a dentist who had to lay off her entire staff um, to tell the story. I also thought that the, the story itself took a deeper dive and made some points that have kind of been overlooked. Um, the healthcare industry lost about 1.4 million jobs in April, and dentists accounted for more than half a million of that. So they talked about the bigger picture, and they also talked about some of the the, face, the problems that are facing dentists in particular. Um, they found that 53% of jobs in dental offices were lost, according to one analysis. So it's something that, you know, has not gotten as much attention, I think. And, of course, oral health care does impact the rest of the body, as we all know. So I thought it was an interesting take on, on some economic data. I, I saw a piece this week about a dentist who donated all of his PPE to the hospital, and now he's able to reopen his office and he can't get any more. So, yeah, it's, it's a problem. Joanne. There was a great piece in The New Yorker by James Summers called The Engineers Taking on the Ventilator Shortage. And it was about the efforts to not just crash building uh, with the full service ventilators, but all this sort of crowdsourcing and open sourcing and brainstorming across the country of ways to come up with scaled down ones that could meet some of the needs uh, more simply, more inexpensively, um, that that will fill in some of the gaps, not just in the United States, but perhaps for some of the African countries that have like three ventilators for the entire country. And it explains your lungs really well, <laughs> in addition to explaining the <laughs> physics of breathing and how to do it with the machine. I'm learning a lot more about lungs than I ever knew in, in these few months. Uh, well, my extra credit this week is not actually a story, but an art project. It's called Viral Art Project, uh, which is, yes, uh, goes 
both ways. Uh, and it describes itself as, quote, a call to action for graphic designers, artists, and other creative people to bring their talents to the coronavirus emergency facing our world. We're inviting designers to submit poster art that will raise awareness of the challenges facing all of us and promote messages about what we have to do and how we can get through this time together. The website includes some very funny and some thoughtful and some just lovely posters, some of which you can buy to raise money for artists who are unable to otherwise pursue their businesses during the pandemic. Um, I think my personal favorite is one that recreates the famous picture from Times Square at the end of World War II with the sailor kissing a random woman, except in this case, both of them are holding masks in their hands. Uh, I recommend it highly. It is worth a visit. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our intrepid producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay, even though we are all in different places. And hey, no dogs barking this week. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Cannon. At Rebecca Adams, D.C. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.